Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have with us Ken Medlock, who's the Senior Director for the Center for Energy Studies at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy down in Texas. Hi, Ken. How you doing, Marty? Thank you for joining with us today. I'm doing great. Um, we really would like your perspective on what happened, exactly happened to Texas and its grid uh, the middle of February. Um, why don't you just start telling us where you were when it happened and what kinds of thoughts went through your head? Sure. Um, I actually, believe it or not, I've lived in Texas for a long time. So I was, uh, I grew up here. Um, and as they were forecasting the cold to come in, I actually had conversations with my students, um, uh, cohort of graduate students, master's and PhD students um, uh, that I'm teaching this semester on the Friday prior. And uh, had a conversation with my wife about this too, just recalling uh, the events of 1989, believe it or not, when I remember very distinctly, you know, a, a cold blast uh, that was almost on par with what we just experienced, moving through the Houston area and waking up at about 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning and hearing it just sounded like gunshots going off through the neighborhood. Uh, and it was because on the north faces of all the pine trees, because of the, the you know, wintry precipitation, um, they all froze and started to snap and break off. And it was, it was devastating, actually, uh, to see what, um, what, what happened as a result of that. I mean, there were a lot of transmission lines that were down because these branches were falling on, on transmission lines. And of course, there was a lot of you know, broken pipes and all kinds of things. But to be honest with you, I don't recall uh, the power outages being as bad as they were this time around. Um, and that may you know, have to do with a number of things, but I do know there were some outages. But those conversations I didn't think would be as, 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 as good at predicting what was about to happen as they were. So what happened was 356 generators went offline. Yep. Um, millions of folks were in the dark uh, for uh, up to four days, five million homes and businesses, four days. Um, that compares with the last epic um, blast more recent than the, the incident you were recounting. Yeah, February of 2011. Yeah. In 2011, power was out 7.5 hours. Right. This time, it was on average 70.5 hours, tenfold more uh, damaging outage. What went wrong with those 356 generating stations? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, having lived through it, it's one that I want to know you know, very specific, with very specific detail, the answers to, you know, you, you, you started to hear about, you know, the wind generators going offline because they were freezing up. That was the first thing that kind of hit the news wire, if you will. And I'm loosely using news here to talk about Twitter, right? And, you know, living through the middle of this uh, freeze, 
you know, I, I had intermittent cell access too. So I was kind of getting it, living it in real time and getting it, um, you know, updates every couple hours, so to speak. But, um, yeah, we were without power from, you know, late Sunday night until late Wednesday night. So we were out without power for a long time. And then of course, you know, about 12 or so hours into that, the water pressure starts to drop. So didn't have that either, um, for about five days. Um, it was, uh, it was hellish. And, and one of the things that of course, given my role here at the Baker Institute that I, and, and all the folks who work here with me are, are, are and still are want to know and are still digging into is exactly what happened, where, and why. So, Kenna, this would be a good point of uh, saying, what is the role of your uh, Center for Energy Studies in Texas, and what mission do you think you'll be taking on to study this outage? Yeah, yeah, that's actually where I'm going, so no problem. So, uh, given my role here at the at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice, um, you know, we engage with a variety of uh, stakeholders from, you know, practitioners in, in industry to um, NGOs to policymakers and regulators on various issues um, in the energy environment spectrum. Um, and so, of course, what just happened in Texas sits squarely in that space. And we have begun to uh, really try to take a more micro-oriented view um, of what happened uh, on the grid here in Texas because, you know, there's a lot of high-level data that's been sort of floated um, just in terms of the raw numbers of, of facilities that were out um, with some speculation as to whether or not the facilities themselves froze or they lacked access to supply or, you know, you, you can sort of think about all the different things that have been stated. But until you actually start to do a little bit of mapping, and we've started to do some of this work, to figure out where, for example, natural gas facilities sit in the Texas energy ecosystem. Uh, these generating stations are largely along intrastate pipeline systems. Um, and so they rely on gas supplies to move from the wellhead through processing onto those systems and to the facilities so that they can be combusted to generate power. And typically that works just fine. Um, but we know that a large fraction of the gas gen fleet in Texas was inoperable. Um, ERCOT actually released uh, information on Friday, uh, March the, the 4th, I guess it was, um, uh, or on Thursday. Um, yeah, on March 4th about which stations were out, which generating plants were out, but there's no detail why. It's a very comprehensive list about, you know, when facilities were derated in terms of the time they went off, and they do it by generating unit within the station. So it's very detailed. Is there going to be any one entity that's going to be charged with doing the forensics on this? Is it going to be ERCOT? Is it going to be the PUC? Um, will the legislature be doing it? Or is, or is there going to be a dozen? Yeah, there's already hearings on this, right? And the PUC is taking it up. Um, ERCOT, of course, is taking it up. I think there's going to be multiple sources of information that do their own sort of forensic uh, analysis of what exactly happened. That's actually one of the things we're doing. Uh, because, you know, like I said, trying to understand what drove failure of the of the grid, because it was a failure on almost every front. Right. Um, it, you know, like I said earlier, the, the initial discussions was about wind being out, but that was that was not what happened. Right. This was not a, a wind issue. You're getting right now to the heart of why I really uh, wanted to have you on on the line for this conversation. And that is you teach economics at Rice. You have 
I believe, a PhD in economics. Yeah. Um, what is wrong with the business model in Texas? And I realize you may want to give us a thesis now that you test out by doing a lot of research. Yeah. But something in this system does not incent hardening the tra- generation and transmission grid. Can you opine on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's actually where I'm going, believe it or not. So um, We're on the same track. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as I said, this is, this is not a wind issue. Right. Um, this is an issue of the uh, entire energy ecosystem failing. Uh, and generally, when something is catastrophic as what you just saw in Texas happen, I mean, you know, you've seen the reports minutes away from catastrophic failure of the grid. Right. And, you know, to be fair, uh, the grid manager, Arcot, specifically four minutes and 37 seconds. Yeah, exactly. How did they come up with that? Well, they're looking at the frequency variation, right? You typically want to be right around 60, uh, 60 hertz, and it dipped down into the 54 hertz range, I think. And so, if that four minute and 37 seconds had been breached, the potential for the outage would have been for weeks, if not longer. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, it could have been, I mean, it could have been a few days to several weeks. It really just depends on the extent of the damage on the system as a result of, you know, vol- uh, violating that, 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 uh, that, that allowed frequency uh, variation. Okay. So get back to your economics analysis, please. Yeah, no problem. So uh, just to finish that thought, ERCOT did a, what I would say an admirable job of keeping the system from failing in a time of crisis. But everything that got us to that point was an absolute failure. So that's really where you have to dig in and say, all right, well, what drove it? And there's a, there's a number of things. And this is actually where uh, deeper analysis is warranted, which is why we're looking at this in a, in a, in a much more rigorous way. But, you know, when you think about um, one of the things that's been talked about a lot is winterization. So hardening of the infrastructure, um, because there's a lot of discussion about things freezing up. And you think about the incentives uh, that exist in what has classically been termed as an energy-only market, which is what ERCOT is. Um, it really is about generating power to sell into a wholesale market that presumably is going to provide a return to capacity that capacity investments that have been made. Now, usually if you're at the bottom of the supply stack, so you're the low-cost generator, you're going to be in a better position to earn returns when demand rises because additional generation resources will be called upon, right? And that means that you're selling at a price above what it costs you to generate. And so that's where you get a return. Well, that has incented a tremendous amount of what you might call a race to the bottom in terms of costs. Everybody's trying to be the low cost generator. And when you look at the Texas grid in general, That means the incentives are aligned to be sure that you are operable during peak demand periods, which is usually the summertime in Texas. Now, we had four days of sub-zero temperatures. I think there were 108 hours of below freezing temperatures in Dallas. Well, the energy delivery system is not designed to withstand that. And we saw that really reveal itself remarkably. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why isn't it? Well, because if you think about it from the standpoint of, a, of the owner of an asset and you look at the frequency of these types of events, if they only happen four days out of every, say, 20 or 30 years, 
And it's a race to the bottom to be the low-cost energy provider. If there is no mandatory obligation to winterize your equipment to deal with those four days out of every 20 or 30 years, then it's highly unlikely a generator or a power provider or any infrastructure owner is going to incur the cost associated with that because the cost benefit doesn't bear out. Why, why is it nobody nobody came up with that analysis in 2011 or earlier? Why they did. Has a, a decade come? They did. And, and this, is, this, this is what's remarkable about it because 2011 should have been a warning shot. Right, because it got really cold. It wasn't as bad as what we just lived through, but it got really cold. You had some generation outages. Um, you had freeze offs at wellheads out in West Texas in the Permian Basin. I mean, all these things that you're hearing about happening that just happened, you know, in mid February happened back then. It should have been a warning shot. There was a study done um, that looked at uh, uh, what happened, and there were suggestions, recommendations made that winterization. Uh, um, was necessary. Well, when those recommendations were made, there was no uh, obligation that accompanied them or no penalty for not meeting those recommendations. And so, of course, it was like, okay, duly noted, and you just could have keep moving along business as usual. Um, now, there were some some facilities that did you know, take those on board. You, you've probably heard about them like in, in Beaumont and in El Paso, you know, and, and, and so it wasn't like a blanket, nobody did it, right? But there was no mandate. There was no obligation. There was no regulatory intervention that said everybody needs to be in compliance with some minimum standard. In your mind, Ken, um, who should have been doing that? Should it have been the PUC? Should it have been ERCOT? Should it have been the legislature? It's, it's, I think ultimately it comes down to something that's administered um, through the legislature, through the legislative process. But, um, and there's actually, interestingly Let's now- Let's open one more can of worms, and that is, um, I had Bill Magnus on actually in January, uh, and I talked to him about ERCOT being an island unto itself, and if there was any appetite or any rationale to better interconnect with, with the grid across North America. And he said, nobody in Texas really wants that. <laughs> Do you think it's time to re-examine that? Do you think ERCOT should not be unto itself? In which case, FERC would be making some of these requirements, would it not? FERC would, there would be, yes. So if that that's actually one of the biggest drivers behind why um, ERCOT has remained an island, right? It's, it's, it's effectively avoidance of federal oversight. Um, I don't think that, and I haven't, and by the way, I haven't, this, I've had this position for a while. I don't think that the cost benefit bears that out. Um, land is relatively inexpensive in Texas. It's easy to site new infrastructure, tremendous natural gas resources, tremendous wind resources, very nice solar resources. In some, if Texas were connected, it would be a massive exporter of power on any given day to the rest of the country. There's a value proposition there, right? Is that bad? No, it's great. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it actually creates jobs locally. It creates a, an economic opportunity that is effectively going unrealized because there is a barrier to trade. So this is a position I've had for a long time. Ken, if truth be told, I'm sitting here in Kansas City um, in the Southwest Power Pool and when Texas was going through its paroxysms around this windstorm, there were rolling outages throughout the region, yeah. well beyond our boundaries. So we paid the price yep. 
of Texas being islanded? Why can't we benefit from having access to some redundant renewable resources when there's more than Texas needs? I'm not arguing with that's exactly what I'm saying, right? There's an unrealized value proposition associated with not being connected. When you don't have transmission capacity, it's a barrier to trade. And so it limits opportunities to access lower cost, abundant resources that exist on one side of that barrier from the other. And so I think that the state should be looking very hard at assessing the cost benefit because so as far as I can tell, there is no valid argument for Texas not being connected. Now, one thing that we have to be conscious of when we have this conversation is there are folks who are saying if Texas had been connected during this last storm, it would have benefited by being able to wheel power in. That's actually not quite true because if you look at the emergency reports on ERCOT, they had to have for frequency control, they actually had to shut down some of the limited interconnected capability that exists, the DC interconnects. And so, and that's because there were outages on both sides, right? But here's my point. If you go back 30 years and you have viable transmission capacity that connects ERCOT to the Eastern and Western interconnects more generally into SPP, into MISO, into the WEC, right? If you have those connections, it changes all of the investments that occur over the last 30 years. It makes those transmission connections more robust. It alters capacity investments on both sides of the connections. And so when you get to what we just went through, arguably it looks a lot different. And so when you have a conversation about being interconnected, it's also important to pair that discussion with the discussion about how investments would matriculate if you were connected. And that's where I think is missing from the discussion. So you're doing an exercise looking backward. How about doing an exercise looking forward? The end of 2020, there's 30,000 megawatts of wind power that's been built into Texas. That's a 200-fold increase from just the year 2000. And you're slated to have 38,000 megawatts of wind in three years. Doesn't it make sense to maximize the value of that asset by being more interconnected? <laughs> Absolutely. I, that is exactly my point. Um, in fact, we, uh, a colleague of my, uh, mine and I did, did some work looking at what if you could uh, develop high voltage direct current transmission using nanowire? So this was a nanotechnology discussion. You know, these are very lightweight, high efficiency carbon nanotube structures that um, are great conductors of electricity. And we were looking at exactly what you're asking. What if you could use those very large interconnect capacities to pair, for example, Texas wind with Arizona and California solar? You have non-coincident peaks. You'd be wheeling wind west when the wind's blowing hard and solar east when the wind's not. And it just makes for stability. That's actually what connectivity does. It creates a resilience opportunity that is going unrealized at the moment. So, yes. And I'll I'll, I'll add you one. If, If there's more economic rationality into doing exactly as you just sketched out, the extra value that's generated, the extra wealth that's generated by that greater efficiency, some of it could be used to harden the assets in Texas the next time a major winter storm comes through. 
Oh, absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, look, it's in a competitive market. So any, I'll just preface all this. Any market is only as good as the rules that govern it. Right. And, and when you're, if you're going to have a competitive market, you have to think about ways to cost in the social cost of reliability. And that's effectively what this conversation is about. Because if you are not appropriately incentivizing hardening the infrastructure so that you can withstand these very cold periods or even a very hot period or, you know, a very stormy period as we, you know, have on the Gulf Coast, um, then you actually run the risk of outages. And if those outages occur with any duration, like we just saw, there's a human element to that, right? There were people that died as a result of the freeze that we just lived through and the inability to generate heat because there was no power. So you have these issues that need to be confronted and they need to be costed into the system, which means if you have a mandate that says if you're going to operate in this market, you need to meet these certain minimum standards, everybody would do it. And that's what's missing right now. So what, what's your hope as a, as a Texan, um, knowing how strong the political winds blow through your state, um, of, of having this kind of honest assessment um, and do you, or do you see people so dug into preconceptions about the Texas way of independence that, that it's not going to, this argument's not going to take place? Uh, the argument is taking place actually. As a matter of fact, um, there are several house bills that have been introduced already in the state legislature that address some of these issues head on effectively you know addressing mandatory winterization um addressing resilience of the natural gas delivery infrastructure which is something we really haven't talked about very much yet but happy to um addressing uh, a variety of issues that have come up as a result of this recent winter storm um and you know some of them are kind of feel-good policies that'll win you know political favor um, some of them are much more serious, much more aimed at really trying to address some of the um, uh, uh, fragilities that were just exposed in the entire grid. Um, and that includes even interconnection. So there's a lot of things that are being discussed in real time in Austin now that weren't prior to this event. So you know, hopefully what, you know, not everything will get through, obviously, but hopefully what does get through will enable uh, a more resilient uh, electricity ecosystem to evolve, an energy ecosystem to evolve in Texas, one that's capable of withstanding these, these you know, tail events because they're going to happen. As somebody that, that's directing the Center for Energy Studies, you're really on the, in the catbird seat of a major, major public policy study that's going to be underway for the next year or two. Um, what role would you like to play in that? Well, I think it's one that we have done a good job of, of playing in other dimensions and, and we'll do so in this one. It's really one of, um, you know, trying to dig deep into the data uh, in a very micro-oriented way so you can dissect exactly what happened. Um, you know, we, we talked about winterization. We talked about transmission. You know, there's another issue that's on the table that, um, quite frankly, there's not a lot of clarity about yet, but it has to do with compression on pipeline systems that move natural gas through the state and um, the increasing electrification of those systems. Now, what's interesting about this is Pipeline distribution of natural gas is regulated by the Railroad Commission. 
transmission and distribution of electrons is regulated by the PUC. Well, those two entities don't really talk to each other. So it turns out that in some cases, we have a situation where pipelines have been moving to electric compression. And I don't know the extent to this yet. That's actually some data that we are in the process of gathering. But if the electricity system fails, then your compression fails, which means you actually end up producing pressure on pipelines and can't move molecules. If that's happening, then gas plants can't get gas supplies. Therefore, they cannot generate electricity. Do you see the circularity here? So you end up with a single point of failure on a system, and you should never have a system design where there is a single point of catastrophic failure. And so that's another area where we're we're digging into that to try to figure out the extent to which this was a problem because those are things that are correctable and they need to be corrected, quite frankly. Just just hypothetically, um, the industry is focused on microgrids and energy storage. Uh, might new technologies help address that? Potentially, um, you know. Although, uh, you know, even in the in the microgrid kind of discussion, some of the technologies that are being really emphasized as uh, uh, capable of delivering on the Texas grid, they failed to. So it really is about building enough redundancy and resilience into a system that it can withstand these kinds of things. And the irony of the microgrid discussion, right? Um, and, and there is some talk about having capability to island yourself in events like this that is emerging as well. But the irony of the microgrid discussion is it's effectively a discussion about separating yourself uh, from the rest of the grid uh, at its core. And notice what we were just talking about with regard to Texas and actually connecting to the rest of the grid. So you know, these, these are issues that, that in some instances at the extremes will definitely run headlong into each other. Uh, and so there's got to be a balance. There's got to be a real discussion about these things. The last question I want to ask you is, uh, Texas gets a lot of notice just because of its size and might as an economy and uh, um, a proclivity to go its own way. Um, this debate that's going to take place the next few years over the future of the energy grid in Texas um, and the advent of massive amounts of renewable energy in the wings. How important is that to the rest of the country to watch, and what should they be watching for? Oh, it's massively important. As a matter of fact, you know, Texas has uh, more wind, solar, and battery capacity combined. It's largely due to wind, but it's number three in solar and two in battery capacity uh, than any other state in the country. And it is an island in electricity. So, when you think about just the, the sheer capacity, which should be harvested, quite frankly, because the wind, you know, the, the wind resource in Texas is phenomenal. Um, but when you think about the amount of capacity that's been installed without any real concerted attention being given to resilience, um, it's just sort of happened almost... Uh, as a matter of course, you've seen you know natural gas really stepping in as coal is 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 being reduced in Texas. Wind is growing, solar is growing, gas is growing too. You know it's it's cheap, it's flexible, and it's been really providing that bridge. Right, uh, allows the intermittent renewables to to get onto the system. But if you are designing your system that way, without an, an eye towards resilience and gas delivery infrastructure then you have a problem because you have a system that is not resilient. 
And so it really means thinking about things in an integrated way, not just thinking about more of one or more of the other. You've got to think about if we have more of one, what do we need to do to make sure the entire system is resilient? So you have to think about things in an integrated fashion. And that's something that I think a lot of folks just haven't been doing sufficiently. There are people that have been, right? I mean, some of these discussions have been sort of uh, ringing at PUC hearings for a while around the country, um, but they're largely falling on deaf ears. And so it's time for politicians to really step up and, and understand these issues because moving to a, a, a system with more renewables is, is, is a goal that we should be striving for. Right, it's it's a it's a cleaner, greener system, but we also have to recognize that resilience and the social cost of reliability is something that has to be internalized. So, a, a decade has elapsed between the 2011 and the 2021 outages. Um, these storms we're being told are going to happen with increased frequency. Do you th- think the lessons of this year will be learned fast enough to head off the next major outage? I am the ultimate optimist. I'm going to say yes, just because of the the, the depth of severity of this event. Um, if, it, if, it, if we had just lived through an event like what we saw in February 2011, where the outage wasn't that long um, and the depth of the cold wasn't as deep, um, it probably would already be you know out of sight, out of mind, to be blunt. Um, for most people in the public eye, um, but this was, I think, deep enough and severe enough that it's going to it's going to lead to some real action and, and hopefully some real substantive change. But you know, as I said, there's already more than a handful of bills at the, on the House floor uh, in the Texas Legislature directly addressing various issues that have been identified as problematic. Okay. Well, thanks, Ken. Sure. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk today. We've had the pleasure of meeting with Ken Medlock who is the Senior Director of the Center for Energy Studies at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.